0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. We're celebrating our one-year anniversary uh, with this interview, and so I want to introduce a special guest for today, Noor Nasreen Ibrahim, talented writer, journalist, and a dear friend. We're going to talk mostly, about Noor's latest work, an essay for the collection, Horse Girls, Recovering, Aspiring, and Devoted Writers Redefine the Iconic Bond, edited by Halima Marcus and published by Harper Perennial earlier this year. Horse Girls confronts, investigates, and fleshes out the trope of the quote-unquote horse girl, the idea that all a young girl wants is, is to learn how to ride a horse, famous from his works as early as Black Beauty all the way through to My Little Pony. And Noor's essay talks about her experiences riding horses growing up in Pakistan, bringing in themes of colonialism, the urban-rural divide, and how one's perspective changes as they age. But we'll also talk about Noor's experience as a writer, both in the United States and in Pakistan, and her path to literature. Nor is a journalist, writer, and producer based in New York City. Originally from Lahore, Pakistan, she writes speculative and literary fiction as well as personal essays. Her fiction and nonfiction has been included in anthologies and collections from Harper Perennial, Catapult, Hatchet India, Platypus Press, The Aleph Review, Salmagundi Magazine, Barrel House, and more. She is a two-time finalist for the Salam Award for Imaginative Fiction, and she is a 2021 to 2023 recipient of the Lighthouse Writers Book Project Teaching Fellowship. Noor... I'm so happy that you're here on the show with me today. And I want to start with, you know, the horse. What is it about the horse that makes such a compelling subject for a personal essay like yours and others in Horse Girls?
2: Well, first of all, thank you, Nick, for having me on this podcast. It's really exciting considering we've known each other for many years since college, and now we get to chat and just hang out on a podcast. Uh, I wanted to, before I answer your question, I wanted to say that you have a great podcast voice. It's a very specific voice that not many people get, get, but you have gotten it. So I wanted to. I, I, it's been it's been compared to
1: public radio hosts, which I'm not sure is a compliment or not. <laughs> but Anyway,
2: I think it's a compliment. I'm in awe of public radio hosts, so you have that podcast voice, and I'm very impressed. Um, so yeah, thank you for the generous introduction. This is very kind of you to have me. And to answer your question, what it is, what is it about horses? Like, I think that for me, growing up, I was surrounded by images of horses, by the romanticism of horses. Um, you know, through the typical routes, which is Black Beauty, but also through um, the artwork that hung in my grandparents' home, my parents' home, the horses that we saw like on the streets. Um, you know, we grew up in uh, an army cantonment in Lahore. And so our our home was right next is right next to a polo ground, um, which was set up by the army, and they'd play polo matches when it was the right season. And so you'd see like these majestic horses, um, be trotting down the road um, when it the season was right. Um, my brother went to a very um, old pre partition colonial school that was set up by the British, and they had a huge ground filled with horses where boys would they would do tent pegging or do races or just train on horse riding. So it was very much like part of the post-colonial British setup that we grew up in as like, say, upper class, uh, upper middle class and upper class kids um, in Lahore. And so horses were just sort of this very, you know, romanticized, idealized thing that I saw in my own, in my hometown, um, Lahore itself has this very old polo club where people play polo matches um, not just the one next to my house but this bigger older one where they'd give classes to kids who wanted to ride Um, and so it was definitely something that was sort of ubiquitous in the region and it was very much associated with um, wealth, with um, power, with the British um, and with a very deep long-standing history. Um, And so, you know, I didn't automatically think that I would know to write about horses or that horses are something that I'm an expert on. But the moment that I saw this call for submissions, which Halima put out on her website, and she's a fantastic editor. She runs Electric Literature, which is this amazing website which every, all these everyone, writers and editors and readers should definitely check out. And so I followed that website really um, intensely. And when I saw her call for submissions, it just occurred to me that actually, you know, I grew up around horses. I rode horses, not just in Lahore, but, um, you know, in different parts of the country. And I have a lot to say about horses. And it didn't occur to me until I actually saw the essay sub- submissions um, request.
1: And I mean, the the horse is is, is you know, it's very important in, you know, like I said Pakistani art, but in South Asian art in general, it's got a long history um, in in South Asia. I mean, I, we, we, we had an interview a couple of weeks ago with um, with Yasha Swini Chandra. He's written this whole book about, you know, the history of the horse um, in India kind of going through art. But I wonder if you can kind of bring in your perspective on what the horse means to uh, those living in India and Pakistan.
2: I mean, I think it means different things to different people. Um, you know, I cannot speak to the deep-rooted history of horses um, because I'm not a historian. But I do know that in art and literature, and there's this sort of very there's a, both a romantic and a practical association with horses. Um, in our in Lahore, in particular, like there's this whole. Um, this is actually a section that didn't make into the into the essay, but there's. There's an entire tomb for one of the ancient um, Muslim uh, conquerors um, who died by in a polo match, um, you know. And so there's an entire tomb. There's an entire mythology, you know. I don't know if it's historically been verified, but um, a big part of the mythos of the polo club and the history of Lahore is associated with this emperor, king, uh, conqueror who was killed when he was riding his horse. Um, horses are a big part of, you know, the stories of Mughal emperors and, you know, Akbar and Babur and like Jankir and all these guys would write about, you know, their love of actually the Baburnama Nama has a lot of discussion about, you know, his love of horses and and their associations as, you know, they were essentially a lot of them were raiders who came through into into the, the subcontinent riding horses, which is what most people did back then. Um, And so, you know, it's very deep rooted in the history. Um, Polo, essentially, uh, the game of Polo was, to my knowledge, was really established and built up in this region. You know, the game of um, Buskushi or uh, playing, you know, it's a particularly an Afghan game where essentially two teams fight over the carcass of a goat. Um, that came from Afghanistan. Um, Ten-pegging, all these things really grew and flourished in South Asia. So a lot of the fancy games that you see around here, either the British built it up, but it also grew from games that were played by emperors and Mughal emperors in particular in the subcontinent. But, you know, the horses that I spent most of my time were like really horses that were for tourists, that, you know, I spent a lot of my time in, again, another remnant of the British... Uh, outposts in South Asia, which was in Nathia it's a hill station that British officers and and uh, army and army and officials would go spend their summers to escape the heat from the plains of Punjab and stuff. They would spend their summers in this hill station called Nathia and today Nathia has become a tourist destination where a lot of horse, uh, we call them Goree Wale, but they were a lot of horsemen basically take kids and families and people around um, on hikes and around this around the hill station and a lot of them essentially babysat me for much of my childhood and for them it was their livelihood and i spent so much time riding horses with them that it became that was sort of really where i felt like i was a real horse girl more than anywhere else and and so horse riding is really now you know like in a lot of tourist places it's very much a thing for people to do, not just experts, but it's also a huge sport um, in the north of Pakistan. Like polo games are really popular, not just for the wealthy in Lahore, but in uh, there's like an annual polo match between um, two towns in Gilgit, Chitral, and they happen over the summer. And actually Westerners love to come and see that. I've never seen it, but a lot of my friends and family have. And it's really a an event for that region. This is way further north than Nathiagali. This is in the northern areas in Pakistan, and that is like one that brings out the rivalry of two towns where everyone is there. You know, I even heard that once the Duke of Edinburgh attended that tournament, at like maybe many decades ago. So it's so that is one of the really oldest examples of polo being played by by everyone in this particular region and also sort of being played across the board like of across many different classes bringing different classes and backgrounds to the to the polo field and also being played on one of the highest points in the world one of the highest sort of um regions not just on a, any field in the city but so that's a pretty big and old history and so i think for pakistan in particular it's Horses and polo have had a very long and also very romanticized history.
1: And I wonder if you might kind of explain for those people who haven't been able to go see these places in Pakistan, what's what's um, Natagali like in terms of its landscape, what it, um, the natural beauty, et cetera, et cetera.
2: <laughs> Nathagali is essentially a. It's a very small hill station. It's got. A bunch of very old houses that were set up by the British. A lot of them are run by the government and the army now as guesthouses. As as a region, it's essentially what is today in the lower Himalayas. You can imagine that there's um, what is Pakistan-administered or occupied Kashmir, um, and then there's the Himal- which is around and the Himalayan range, and then below that there's the lower Himalayas, and Nathigali is essentially, you know. On one of the lower end of the mountain ranges, what could be classified as hills, um, and it's beautiful. Like I grew up since I've been since I was six months old, I've been going to Nathiagali. My family's been going there. We sort of have this decades-old association with the place. It's covered with pine trees, um, you know, really, really stunning and you know, lush green greenery. Um, not that many, you know, deep valleys because there's so many, there's so much vegetation and pine and and trees and beautiful little pathways that we would hike on. And um, my family, my aunt has had a has a house there that was built in the nineties, and just a few years later, my parents built their own house. But for a really long time, it was just you know, my entire family, which is dozens of people in one house for a summer. And now that we have more we have one more house, we all sort of have spread out on the same road, and we just sort of spend now my nieces and nephews are, are spending their time there. and so it's one of those places where a lot of a few families were able to spend really decades uh, essentially raising their kids for the summer in that town. Um, and so it has a lot of meaning for me it's It's changed a lot since since my childhood. unfortunately, it's being. Built upon, they're planning to build a bunch of big hotels. There is no real good sanitation and and garbage disposal system. Uh, it's a place that I fear is becoming threatened by overexpansion and lack of management from the local government. And unfortunately, it's also a place that um, our current prime minister Imran Khan loves to sort of tout as, you know, the next tourist destination, but doesn't. Really offer up much by term by way of sustaining it and and sustaining the environment around it. He loves to spend his summers there. Um, his his um, security detail and cars are always seen sort of driving around, um, particularly in times where the country is going through a hard time. You'll find Imran Khan is inevitably in Nathiagali, um, and so it's sort of you know. I guess i romanticized it as a kid but today i do see like there was a lot about natya that i didn't notice um particularly the class element the relationship between locals and the visitors like me and my family and and i think part of my essay is grappling with that that childhood fantasy treating it as like this place that i spent a lot of time fantasizing building you know, writing fantasy stories set around it and not really seeing some of the realities that existed. And that's something that I grapple with in the, in the essay.
1: But it's not the only thing, I think, and after reading your essay, it's not the only thing that changed about your perspective kind of as a, as a child and when you return um, as a young adult. Um, I think, as you know, in your essay, kind of your attitude towards horse riding also changes. Um, you know, I think you say you're much more cautious about it. Um, you're not sure if you can pick it up again, um, and so I guess I guess I kind of wanted to get into um, how, in some ways, how how growing up, um, and also we both know, but like we we were in college together in the United States. I mean, how also studying overseas potentially kind of affected your perspective on some of these things, both on the hill station, but also on the act of horse riding.
2: Yeah, that's a great question, and it's really something that had to do with. I guess, becoming a woman in some ways, you know, when I was eight, nine, 10, I, you know, I grew up with cousins who were much bolder than me, who were really brave on horseback, you know, it wasn't exactly, Nathya wasn't exactly known for like any safety regulations and we were sort of let loose in the hills, we had to, you know, the horse guys would take care of us and our parents just expected, yeah, kids will get into scrapes, it's fine. And so we did do a lot of dangerous things. We, um, you know, we were essentially racing on slippery roads. Um, We would essentially race up on a very steep climb and the horses would just gallop. And I remember I, I definitely fell to my memory at least three times, which is not very much. But for someone like my brother or my cousin, they fell like a lot. They definitely got injured. They were definitely brave and bold and or at least, or stupid, perhaps that's another way to describe it. Um, and we didn't, we didn't really care back then. We, you know, the injuries, the scrapes. I had this whole bruise that ran like from my hip all the way down my leg because the horse and I just sort of fell on the side. And the horses were—they were pretty, you know—they had to be well taken care of because that was their the men's livelihood. They weren't treated cruelly. They would just sort of get up and and sort of be brushed off and go on with their day. Um, and for me, it was like, I would cry a little bit, then I'd get over it. My mom would be like, You're fine. and and so that was that was growing up. and and over as I became a teenager, weirdly enough, and I think this is true for so many kids, people who grow up generally, you just become more cautious. You actually notice heights. Mm. You notice that um, that things are, that there is something known as being, caught, being there is danger out in the world, and for some reason I didn't notice it as much as a kid, and so that's part of why I became more cautious, you know, coming back to the hill station, and and part of it was, you know, I'm coming from a place of, you know, hill the hill station was really this reprieve from the city, we could just walk out at one a.m. roam around a group of us, we could just hang out, boys and girls, just relax, you know, do whatever we wanted. And in Lahore, as a girl, I couldn't do any of that. Like, Mm -hmm. by the time I was getting to 13, 14, I'd already sort of, I mean, practically every woman, every Pakistani woman has experienced some form of harassment, some form of assault, some form of abuse. And so, My parents were very protective of me only to the extent that they knew what was waiting for me out there. But they gave me a lot of freedom. They treated me the same way that they treated my brother. But they knew that it's not a safe world out there. And so we were already taught to like, oh, you can't really go biking alone anymore. You can't do certain things anymore. You should, if you go walking outside, go with someone. And I wasn't, and I sort of that, and that wasn't really anyone's fault. That's just the way that a lot of girls are expected to be the moment you hit a certain age, and I mean, frankly, for any age. Um, and so, I think I internalized a lot of that, and it made me less. It made me hesitant in Natyagali when I got older. Like, I didn't want to step outside and ride, and like, ride horses alone. In some ways, I felt embarrassed. Like, there are all these tourists, and particularly men who come from the cities to Natyagali on the weekends that we'd have to we'd be warned, don't go out alone. This is like all these tourists are coming, they'll stay they'll stare at you, they'll they'll, you know, catcall you or whatever. So nothing really seriously untoward happened to me for many years, but I think I was very cautious and nervous. And I sometimes wish that I hadn't been. I sometimes wish I had been bolder and going and if you're with a if you're with one of the ghode wale you know they really cared for us they really protected us and essentially raised us as kids and but i think part of me was like oh i just don't want to you know be embarrassed i just don't want to embarrass myself i need to you know i'd rather just walk somewhere than go on a horse cuz i look stupid and so going to college and coming back also i felt this remove and this distance and this realization that i'm never going to you know even though i thought that i was you know i knew these men i grew up with them they they took care of me i felt like oh i felt like the gulf has grown between us and it's kind of hard to explain i still sort of don't know the exact words to put on it but it certainly has a lot to do with realizing our differences realizing that there's lot, there's class, there's region, there's geography, there's gender, all these things that divide us. And I internalized it way too much, frankly.
1: Right. And I think that's, that's unfortunately a phenomenon, I think, that all of us go through um, in terms of kind of you, once you recognize the divides are there, you then change your behavior because of them, which of course just makes the divides even worse. um, Because then you're, um, because it just affects your behavior. Um, I I had one more question about, about your essay. Um, And um, it starts, you, you kind of start the essay by talking about um, one particularly famous painter um, uh, is Ismail Gulji.
2: Ismail Gulji. I guess quickly.
1: Yeah. Oh Gulji! I'm sorry. You even you even walked me through it before the show, no, and I already for I already forgot <laughs> Ismail Gulji. It's okay. Um, and yeah. uh, I guess in short, so who 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 was he, and why did you decide to include him and in his story in your essay?
2: So he was a really big part of Nathiagali when I was a kid, uh, up until I was a teenager and he's his he's actually his story makes up the first section of the essay and he's one of pakistan's most well known painters he's so it he was essentially a genius uh, painter he made beautiful calligraphies but the thing that i remember him for was his his um, lapis lazuli mosaics uh, of horses and they were so magical i, I remember we bought a book that we got him. It's one of his printed books uh, that look at his collection and his history. And he signed it for us. Um, And he signed it because he lived in a house that was um, just a few minutes walk from our house. And he had a studio there. And he was this really gentle, soft, um, kind man with, um, you know, with this brilliant energy about him. One thing that you know, we had the privilege of one time seeing him paint an entire oil canvas of with, a, with his calligraphy. And he was the kind who would paint uh, Islamic motifs. He would do the 99 names of Allah uh, in these massive brush strokes of oil paints. Um, you know, put multiple colors on a paintbrush and in one swish he would have painted this, you know, he would have painted Allah or like, uh, one of the many names or, or some religious um, phrases and so his house was called um, Gulji Ki Ankh, which means the eye of Gulji because he had his son had installed like this beautiful mosaic that made up an eye at the front of the house and so it was very magical for kids to sort of encounter uh this artist in the mountains who lives in this, this magical looking house, which has a gallery inside and a studio. And with this beautiful view overlooking the mountains, it's like straight out of a fairy tale, frankly. And a few years we we knew him for all those years. And then it was in, I'm blanking on the date, the, but it was around 2000 and the late 2000s that, he lived in Karachi for the rest of the year. And in the late 2000s, everyone learned that he'd been murdered um, by what his staff, his domestic staff, was accused of murdering him and taking off with his paintings. And uh, and so it was this sort of huge tragedy that shook everyone. But again, was another thing that people questioned. Like, what did we... What what was going on that we didn't know about? What was happening in their household that we didn't know about? That led to this murder, um, and and now today like that he's he's gone and that plot of land which which had that magical house, it's been destroyed. That house doesn't exist there. It's, I think it's been sold, and it was sort of a very weirdly symbolic of the transience of the place. Just in like a matter of years, someone who who was so integral, who culturally is so integral to the country, was killed, and this beautiful home that essentially should have been some kind of, in a probably in another country it would have been a kind of museum to this art, to this artist, or or held up as sort of a memory for someone who sort of gave a lot to culturally to Pakistan, and it doesn't exist anymore. It's all gone, and so. I felt like a little sad that it sort of symbolized the way I feel about Natya A lot has no, nothing really is preserved and things change. And I know that that's normal for a place that's normal in life, but I don't know. It just reminded me that we, there's no such thing as preservation or holding on to memories or history here.
1: I'd like to shift now to talk about, your actual kind of experience in in writing the essay and working with mm-hmm. so many other writers. Um, I mean, what was it like to be to be a part of this writing project of of this essay collection?
2: Well, um you know you sort of have to hunker down and work on your own essay, and Halima was the person who uh, dealt with everyone, but we did get to talk to each other in at the book events and engage with each other there. and for me, it was really exciting because um, one of my favorite authors of all time, Carmen Maria Machado, her, she has an essay in the collection and she and I got to be in an event together. So I was basically fangirling um, the whole time. And and she's amazing. So it was a huge, hugely exciting opportunity and an honor because there's some really brilliant people in there, like Jane Smiley and um TK Ramadan and like writers who I've admired for like a really long time. They're all in this this collection. And so I just felt honored to be a part of it and and shocked that I was part of it. And I still am a little bit in awe of the other people in the collection. And it's just, yeah, it's very hard to process that that I got to be in a book with these people. And generally, my, but my process itself was mainly dealing with the editor, Halima, who's absolutely amazing and who really me through the grinder like she really edited the heck out of my piece it was a totally different piece when it started and and frankly she gave me all the right guidance and help and and it was very for me very stressful because i was in the middle of a pandemic Um, my grandfather was sick i was stuck in pakistan for visa reasons and but i was also sitting in Natyagali and working on it and that was the silver lining is that i got to you know, I didn't get to engage with anyone or meet anyone because it was a pandemic. Um, I didn't even get to ride horses, um, because even the Gorevale were not coming into Nathyagali. They Shakur, who is another character and person in my life who I mention in the essay a lot. He's the guy who I ride horses with. He didn't make it in that summer until later the summer in the summer. And so I was in the in the place that I was writing about and it was incredibly difficult to write about the, that same place because I was we were all in such panic and it was felt like an emergency situation and the pandemic really shaped how I saw Natyagali. it really changed everything for me and and I, in the middle of that I was writing this essay about our history in that same place so it was both an interesting place to be and also kind of like ironic that a place I loved so much was also where I I was taking refuge from the pandemic and also I was, you know, really struggling to write any word because I was so stressed out.
1: So first of all, I have I've only been able to read your essay in the collection, Mm -hmm. but I did kind of look through what others have written and um I mean it's not it's not surprising given that this is a book published in the United States featuring a lot of American writers, but I think um, the, to the to the best of my knowledge your essay is one of three I think that mm-hmm. does not deal with one kind of one of the major um, I think probably is not deal with with the United States or other maybe major north markets I think there's one essay on Mexico and there's one essay on mm-hmm. Iceland and then there's your essay on yeah. on Pakistan yeah um, and so I guess kind of what was it what do you how do you think your essay is one of the is one of the few um, that are not, I think, dealing with the United States. Um, and even more than that, kind of one of the few that does not that, that's coming from a, from a perspective that is quote-unquote, you know, not the West. Um, how do you think your essay kind of fits in amongst these other discussions of what it means to be a horse girl?
2: Well, I think each, even though there's one, there's plenty in the United States, I think each essay sort of has a really different perspective because the meaning of a horse girl is so different to so many different people within one country. You know, I think the whole book is sort of resisting the idea that horse girls are these, you know, very perfect looking, athletic, rich, white, um, you know, white women who fit into this very Hollywoodized ideal. And to be fair to, you know, when I was writing it, I realized that I am writing from an upper class perspective from a Pakistani in a Pakistani context. And, and so that's something that, you know, a lot of people in the United States and particularly the writers who are, you know, writing from an American perspective, they were pushing against like they were pushing against that perspective. And so my version of the horse girls is really questioning the, 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 Post-colonial British influence life that I grew up in, which is essentially a life that a lot of upper class kids grew up in, and it does it does interrogate that identity, that upper class identity, in a way that a lot of really amazing writers in the rest of the anthology are, you know, mm-hmm. speaking from their perspectives, which really was a lot of them were not from that perspective or that upper class identity. And I'm, I was grateful that, you know, to be a part of that space where there are some people who interrogate it and some people who are just the voices that we need, who, who live outside of that. So, yeah, I think it was just like a really diverse group. So I'm, I'm really glad that they managed to get such a diverse group of people and everyone was pretty unique and different.
1: So this essay is kind of, it's, it's, it's your latest work, but obviously you've mm-hmm. had, um, many other things published in the past. Um, and you know, here, here's where you bring in the fact that we've known each other for a long time. We've known <laughs> each other for, um, more than oh 10 God, years since like, 2009, more than 10 years. It has, it has been more than 10 wow, years or that's like crazy. What, 12 year, 12 years, 12 year friendship. Um, and we do each other since like first year of college. Yep. And I guess it's kind of like, you know, if, if you kind of look at the path of your life since then, um, you know, kind of like all the stuff we thought we were going to do in college and yeah. then everything we did in the aftermath of college. And, and now you're a you're a you know, you continue to be a published writer and pretty sure we'll have more published writings in the future. Oh, God. Like, I, I guess how do you kind of look look at your how, how, how do you like look at your path of like to getting where you are as as a writer over the past? Um, God, 12 years since we've known each other?
2: Well, I want to start by saying that, you know, we got to know each other because of a class that we took and we became study buddies in a group. Um, And it was a history class that we took um, in freshman year. And I remember relying heavily on your notes. And I remember also, I won't name names, but I remember disagreeing internally with the professor, but I didn't have any sort of language to Or like confidence to disagree with him because a lot of it was about like why the West sort of took over the rest of the world, why colonial powers succeeded, and and I remember later on, growing like a few years after college, thinking that wow, some of that stuff was really messed up. You may disagree with me, actually, Nick, because I thought you were one of the smart people in our class, and I relied on you to help me study. But it was really ironic that we studied with this guy who believed that the West really succeeded through a combination of ingenuity and other oh, things. Oh, and
1: and, def- and definitely since then, you kind of look, I definitely look back to and be like, yeah, there was a lot about that class that was like kind of, I mean, problematic is a word for it. <laughs> but yeah.
2: But, yeah. but it, it did. I think that as freshmen, I was really taken in by fancy speeches and languages. And, you know, it's someone who could just sort of really talk to a class in a way that was charismatic and I thought oh cool I'll take this class and then realized oh I'm learning a lot of really weird shit and so I think it was interesting that you and I started out as friends navigating that and me just being like okay explain to me all these economic things that we're learning in this class today and please help me out like I'm really struggling so I appreciated it back then um and and then throughout college I felt like we were very you know we took totally different classes later but i think that that connection really stuck that sort of shared shared feeling of struggle really stuck throughout college with us
1: shared feeling of what is this, what is this? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: um but no to answer your question i'm i feel like you know you know this as well as i do like it never works out the way you plan after college like I spent years sort of working in journalism and a lot of my job struggles and like delays and doing what I was passionate about was because I was trying to get a visa or trying to stick around in the country. And so that's always been like a perpetual part of my life. And only actually this year have I found some sense of calm that I can actually focus on writing. Um, And so that sort of defined the way that I worked, but I got really lucky in that I found time outside of work, I found time to go back to Pakistan, I found time to really research and do things that I wanted to do, but it required a lot of, like, you know, late nights and a lot of, um, yeah, I guess a lot of sleeplessness and, and hard work, and it didn't come easy, but I think I had a lot going for me as well. Like, I was very lucky in many ways, and and yeah, I mean, I don't really have, like, much of a sort of summary of how the trajectory went. But, you know, I think that one thing I learned is that there is no sort of clear path to doing what you love. You just sort of have to keep trying and hope that one day something will stick or something will work. And you feel like, yes, I've I've written the thing that I've always wanted to write. Um, and frankly, I don't feel that way about a lot of my work. I just don't feel like it's perfect. And you're always sort of that's why I never go back can reread it, reread it. Cause I always feel like I'm going to, I've messed something up in here. Um, but yeah, I'm, I think you, you understand as well. Cause I know that you were, you've been in Hong Kong for a while, but you've always thought of coming back to the U.S.
1: I mean, yeah. And it's like, and it's kind of life takes you where it takes you yeah, right Um Exactly. And, uh, and yeah, you know, I, I, I moved back here thinking it might be for a short time and it being yeah. longer and might still yeah. be longer and who knows? I mean, it's, um,
2: and you, ended up in yeah, New I mean, I guess for, like for your masters and I was wondering, right, like, yes, it seemed like a, like an ideal space for you, but did you ever want to like go back to the UK or keep studying?
1: Uh, I have no comment on whether or not <laughs> I want to stay in the UK. I will keep that. Okay. Uh, I, I, I will, I will save that for the unrecorded part of this conversation. <laughs> um, i I did have one more question for you and I think I mean and 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 you know i I've known you for a long time and and I know you did a lot um in Pakistan to kind of work with um collaborate with support other writers in Pakistan and I guess I just want to kind of ask for your thoughts on on that space like the 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 space for writing, the space for literature, whether in um local languages or in English um kind of what are your thoughts on on literature in Pakistan at the moment?
2: well, I think that it's a really exciting time and Honestly, like I joined up with a lot of really talented people who are already doing a lot of great work. Um, some of them are, um, so this, actually we just announced the results yesterday. I started volunteering with this group that runs the Salaam Award for Imaginative Fiction and they've been running it for five years and uh, well, some of them are based in the U.S. and some of them are based out of Pakistan, the group that's running it and Part of the team, there's this Taiseen Bauja, Christy Lauder, and Usman Malik, who's... Usman is an amazing sci-fi writer and fantasy writer who's been writing uh, based on Pakistani mythology and legends for, like, years. And he's extremely talented. And he essentially encouraged me hugely. Like, my first two sci-fi... slash Not for sci-fi, I shouldn't call it that, because it's mostly fantasy. But... Mm-hmm. The Salaam Award, I became a finalist for that. And that really made me think that, oh, I can write some fantasy. And they encouraged me. And then years later, they're like, do you want to join up with us and and help out, help expand the award? And I was like, sure, I love the work you guys do. So they had been working for a long time. And every year we sort of get amazing submissions from across Pakistan. And it's in English. And the problem is that we don't have the capacity or the number of readers or I guess... Perhaps we haven't had the time to figure out the judging process for works in Urdu or in other languages. Because I do get questions every year that from people uh, asking, do you take Urdu submissions? And I feel like we should, um, because that's what majority of the country, well, majority of the country reads in and in, speaks in local languages like Punjabi, but Urdu is pretty much understood by everyone. And there's a lot of great literature out there. So. That's something that I think we aspire to one day have the capacity and the teamwork for accepting and looking at submissions to for this award in Urdu and other languages one day. Because English writing in English in a place like Pakistan, you're essentially writing for a very small group of people. And that's just sort of the unfortunate reality. And I do feel very mixed about it because it is the language that I write best in and it's the language I was educated in. Um, even though I do speak the other languages, it's just our education systems created this post-colonial divide, essentially, where we went to British schools and like we were taught that this is the language of the future. You have to do it. And then other people from, um, you know, low income and middle class and other backgrounds were essentially put through a different school system. And so there's this whole long, it's very long and sad story of the divide in our education system that I can talk about forever. But that has sort of created this literary divide as well. Um, and there's a lot of great Urdu literature, Urdu sci-fi, Urdu fantasy that I grew up on and I read and and I'm still learning about and discovering. And, and I feel like ha- if we have a literary community that can that has people who can read and write and study both the languages, like imagine the things we can do. Like it's just amazing just the amount of talent that's out there only in English. We've gotten submissions from small towns in Pakistan of English short stories and sci-fi and fantasy. and, And so there's a lot of talent out there and we just have to find the capacity to build it up. And I'm only a small part of this. I just volunteer on a part-time basis to do it. But the Salam Award is doing really good work, and they really try hard. Um, another initiative that I'm also helping out on a part-time basis is the SAG anthology, which is a South Asian avant-garde anthology. And they work across South Asia to bring you know different voices forward in avant-garde settings. Like they they work in um, um, reportage, fiction, nonfiction, multimedia, we're actually working with a number of people these days in, who are reporting a bunch of pieces from across South Asia and I'm editing some of them and so that's going to be coming out over the next few years but again we are fundraising and volunteering to do this so it's a really slow process because we all have like a ton of things to do um, and also the pandemic results in like us not being able to fundraise as much as we can but if people are listening to this, um, I'd love it if you guys could share our fundraiser um, because we we're really trying to make sure that underrepresented voices get get a platform and get paid fairly for their work. Like uh, for some reported pieces, we pay up to like things like five hundred dollars, which is a lot in. A Pakistani or Indian context. It's a lot of money. So we want to pay people fairly for their hard work. And that's one of the missions of, our, of the SAG anthology. And these days, it's been hard to fundraise for it. So our work is on a pause, but we still have stuff in the back burner that's that people are working on and that we hope to release soon.
1: So with that, thank you for listening to our interview with my good friend, Noor Nasreen Ibrahim, writer, journalist, and contributor to Horse Girls, Recovering, Aspiring, and Devoted Writers, Redefine the Iconic Bond. Noor, you, you've kind of already answered this question, <laughs> but I'm just going to ask it again. Um, you know, and to be a last, the actual, actual last question, which is kind of where can people find your work and
2: what's next for you? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. This was super fun. And um, what is next? I don't really, I'm still working on a few things that are coming out, hopefully in some anthologies next year. And I'm a teaching fellow. So I'm teaching classes through the Lighthouse Writers Workshop um, where I'm working on a long-term project over the next two years as part of the fellowship. And uh, it's called the Lighthouse Book Project. So people should check it out in case that they're interested in working on Longer term things and getting mentorships and things like that. So it's a pretty cool initiative. Um, and my work can be found. Well, I generally tweet about my work a lot. I probably should get a website. I know a lot of people do have those, and I don't have one. But um...
1: mine, mine is woefully <laughs> unupdated.
2: Okay, I'm to check out your website. I didn't know you had one.
1: Please don't. How did you build Please it? do not. It's not it is. <laughs> We'll talk offline, offline conversation.
2: Yeah, everyone tells me that I need to have a website because I have things around there. So I guess just, I mean, I guess follow me on Twitter. I'm at N-U-R-I underscore I-B-R-A-H-I-M at Nuri underscore Ibrahim. And so I tend to share my work there. Um, Otherwise, you can just Google me. Something will come up.
1: Well, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. The Asian Review of oh. Books podcast is on all your favorite pod. Oh, did you have-, have
2: one more thing to add? Um, oh, please go ahead. Yeah, follow the follow the SAG anthology. S A A G, anthology. So it's at SAG anthology on Twitter and donate to our fundraiser to help support artists and writers from across South Asia. It'll be our link will be on the Twitter account.
1: So um the Interview Books Podcast is on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends if you want to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. It's been so great to do this for the past year, and it'll be great to continue doing this in the future, in the future years to come. Stay tuned for more information on who's coming up on the show. But before then, thank you again, Noor, so much for joining me. Um, on the show today. It was great to talk to you. Thank you
2: so much. Yeah, this was so much fun. Thank you.